1: Welcome to New Books Network. My name is Charles Coutillo. Today we are delighted and honored to have Sir David Cannadine, Professor of History at Princeton University, President of the British Academy editor of the Oxford uh, Dictionary of National Biography, which is the successor of, to the Dictionary of National Biography. And we are here today to talk about his latest book, The Victorious Century, the United Kingdom, 1800 to 1905. Uh, so, David, thank you very much for being with us.
0: It's a huge pleasure, a huge pleasure.
1: Question, or first of many questions, why stop the book in December 1905, January 1906? Why not continue it in the way that, say, uh, Ensor does to, I think, August 1914, or Searle in his uh, very recent uh, volume for the Oxford Dictionary of England, where I believe he ends it in December or November 1918?
0: Well, um, one of the interesting things about trying to write uh, another history of the 19th century, since as those examples you cite suggest, there's been no lack of previous attempts, is to try to work out um, how to approach it in a way that might be slightly new and slightly interesting. And that in its turn, I think, has implications for when you start and when you stop, since uh, the choice of terminal dates might itself to some degree help determine what you see as the main themes of the period in between that you want to write about. Um, And as you say, a lot of people choose to begin the uh, 19th century in the British case in 1815 with Waterloo, ushering in a century of global supremacy, and they end it almost exactly 100 years later uh, in 1914 when the First World War starts. Um, And a lot of books have uh, adopted those dates, and on occasions, two books have covered that period. Um, as in the case of Sir Llewellyn Woodward and Sir Robert Ensor the Oxford History of England books, which uh, covered exactly that period. And I suppose I slightly thought that um, that chronology and those terminal dates have had more than a good run for their money, and I thought it would be interesting to see what happened if um, I chose slightly different dates, which, although only slightly different, as it were, have a considerable impact greater than just the slight difference of the dates themselves and so I thought I would begin in 1800 which is the act of union between the United Kingdom of Great Britain uh, and Ireland. Uh, because it seemed to me that what that opened up was the possibility of explaining that one of the major themes, not on the whole given, I think, sufficient attention in the history of the 19th century United Kingdom is how Great Britain deals or fails to deal with Ireland. That, That, in fact, is a huge preoccupation and has major consequences, both for the way the British treat Ireland and for the way that Ireland impacts on British politics. And I thought it would be interesting to end the book Um, with the fall of the Conservative government and the Liberal election, the period, as you say, 1905 to 1906, because I thought it would be interesting to end with another, as it were, parliamentary event, uh, or at least political event, that's to say a general election which uh, changed the composition uh, of the Lower House of Commons very significantly uh, with the Liberal landslide. Um, And I thought that those dates would be intrinsically Uh, suggestive and open up new avenues of inquiry. And I also thought that what bound them together was that the book begins with an act of parliament and it ends with a general election. And that uh, makes play in the fact that one of the themes another of the themes that i want to run through the book uh, is the extraordinary preeminence of the british Parliament uh, the extraordinary continuity of british political culture um, in a way that really wasn't true of any other uh, major country in the 19th century world um, and this is something perhaps which um, the the 19th century itself took for granted but something which um, from the vantage point we have today uh, is perhaps a point worth pausing over and giving some attention to.
1: What is the long 19th century? What are its parameters chronologically speaking?
0: Well there are lots of different versions and variants of the long 19th century and of course my book in a sense isn't isn't the long 19th century since it's 1800 to 1905 to 6 and that's barely stretching beyond 100 years Um, I suppose uh, the most famous example of the long 19th century would in fact be Eric Hobsbawm's trilogy, The Age of Revolution, The Age of Capital, The Age of Empire, which is a history of Europe and in certain areas a history of the world much more broadly, um, which begins in 1789 with the French Revolution and ends in 1914 with the outbreak of the First World War. So that would be um, one version of uh, the long 19th century. But um, Choosing terminal dates is exceptionally difficult. Um, Jürgen Oysterhamel has, of course, just recently produced, or at least it's recently been translated into English, uh, his book on the global 19th century. And he makes the point that if you're trying to write a global history of the 19th century more self-consciously so than Eric Hobsbawm's book, then the whole notion of the 19th century is, is is vexed because not all parts of the world actually thought in terms of centuries. Um, and depending again on what issues you're interested in, um, they don't all begin in 1789 or 1800 and they don't all end in 1900 or in 1914 or in 1918. So there's a sense in which um, the, the choice of terminal dates, it's not arbitrary. I think um, most people who've written on this period have good reason for choosing the dates that they have chosen. And I would like to think that that, that would also apply to me. But uh, inevitably, um, although not arbitrary, the choice of dates must perforce be selective. That's to say, uh, they're determined by interest in a certain set of subjects as distinct from perhaps other sets of subjects where the 19th century might have a different span and a different cover a different time and operate at a different tempo. But that's the, the imperfect nature, as it were, of the historical enterprise.
1: How does your history interact with the so-called new global history?
0: Well, what I tried to do, uh, one of the other things that I tried to do in this book was to give um, more attention perhaps than some earlier textbooks written in an earlier time did uh, or earlier surveys written in an earlier time did um, to Britain's position in the world. Um, Over the last 10 or 20 or 30 years, there's been a huge Proliferation of work, especially of course on Britain's relation in the 19th century with its empire, but also with its relation beyond the strict boundaries of formal empire. I'm thinking in particular, for instance, of John Darwin's book on the British world system. And one of the things that I wanted to try to do was to bring together, uh, as it were, the history of. United Kingdom within the United Kingdom but also the history of the United Kingdom's involvement with other parts of the world. in part through its empire, both informal and formal, but also in part through its relations with Europe, which seemed to me to be a major theme of 19th century British history. Um, and also, of course, its relations with the United States, which um, is, a, as it were, an English-speaking story. But certainly by the end of the century, nobody could say that the United States was part of the British informal empire. And indeed, by the late 19th century, the United States was... Um, Equipped or had equipped itself with an economy of such scale and size and strength that it was already uh, in several areas threatening Britain's uh, industrial preeminence and also indeed its maritime preeminence too.
1: How does your political history as written compare or contrast with the so-called Peterhouse school view of history?
0: Well, I think the Peterhouse view of history, I'm thinking here of people like um, Maurice Cowling and I suppose Michael Bentley and John Vincent, Uh, that Peterhouse school of history would say that high politics is the thing that matters more than anything else. Um, and uh, some of them, I suppose especially the late Maurice Cowling uh, later on in his academic odyssey would say that religion has been an under-stressed and underrelated subject. Um, and I think it's fair to say that uh, one of the things that I also tried to do in this book was to bring high politics, not perhaps in that very um, self-consciously Peterhouse sense, but to bring high politics back to the center of the story. Uh, which I have tried to do because it seems to me that one of the big issues of 19th century British history is how politicians try to cope with the extraordinary changes occurring in Britain and try to cope, try to understand how to deal with Ireland to the extent that they do cope and understand how they try to deal with Britain's engagement with the wider world. Um, And so to that extent, it is a book which uh, the spine of which in a way is politics because of course as I've already said, A part of the point of the book beyond that is that politics is the way in which this extraordinary continuity of parliamentary institutions uh, expresses itself. Um, It's also the case, of course, that the whole remit of the Penguin histories of Britain were meant to be built around politics, but construed and conceived in the widest possible sense of that word. Um, As far as religion is concerned, I did try to give uh, more attention than perhaps some uh, more secular-minded historians have done to the fact that uh, religion was uh, an issue of extraordinary importance in 19th century Britain, um, and that um, many of the great issues of politics um, were, in fact, about religion. Um, And that, of course, brings us back to Ireland, because, of course, what makes uh, Ireland in part so complicated? for the British to deal with um, is that it is overwhelmingly a Catholic country. And so the politics of Ireland, impinging on the politics of Britain, are certainly about religion, they're about land, um, they're about nationalism, they're about a whole variety of things. But I wanted to try to um, not only bring back politics to the centre of the 19th century story, but to a certain degree bring back religion to the center of that story as well and then of course that feeds into the notion of the late 19th century um, crisis of faith uh, and of belief um, and of doubt which uh, again is certainly a major part of this extraordinary century when there were so many different things going on.
1: You characterize the Anglo-Irish Union of 1800 as quote fundamentally flawed. If uh, that was the case, why did it last so long, and could you explain why otherwise extremely astute statesmen like Salisbury um, did not view the whole exercise, for lack of a better expression, in purely pragmatic terms, that this was a political action by pitt and Castlereagh, among others in uh, the late 1790s uh to endeavor to solve or they hope they hope to solve the perennial irish problem obviously given the subsequent history particularly the famine etc that uh, solution didn't work so why not go back to the drawing board and do something else
0: well of course that was what gladstone tried to do um and it didn't work um i mean i suppose uh, from the standpoint of the 19th century the act of union lasted for a long time that's to say for the whole of the 19th century but if one compares it with the union with scotland or the union with wales then of course it was of relatively short uh, duration and i suppose uh, for many people of relatively unhappy uh, duration, since it doesn't really last uh, much beyond the First World War. I think that the, the origins of it in part help explain why it did not work, that's to say it's a scheme of national consolidation, largely um, put together by Pitt and by Castlereagh and by Cornwallis, who was Viceroy of Ireland at the time. Uh, in an attempt to rationalize and consolidate the United Kingdom at a point when the wars against France are not going well. There's a constant fear that the French will invade Ireland um, because although Napoleonic France was not a Catholic country, uh, historically France was a Catholic country and that gave a kind of cultural and religious connection with Ireland and it was a constant British worry that the French would invade Ireland and that would then be a jumping off point to invade Britain uh, across Across the Irish Sea as well as across the English Channel and so the uh, Act of Union was an attempt to consolidate the Anglo-Irish uh, national connection. Uh, in the hope that that would fend off uh, any further French interference. There had, of course, been such interference in the 1790s. But the problem was that it was a flawed enterprise from the outset because what the Act of Union meant was that the Irish lost their parliament and the quid pro quo of that that Pitt, the younger, who was prime minister, wanted was Catholic emancipation, which was to give the Irish, more more Irish people the vote um, and to enable them to hold high public office in what was in other ways Protestant uh, Britain. And George III, uh, who, like all British monarchs after 1688, uh, swore a coronation oath to hold up the Protestant religion by law established, um, was not willing to countenance that. And so Pitt resigned, and it's therefore another generation before Catholic emancipation was finally carried. And the failure to carry Catholic emancipation earlier than that, uh, in many ways, results in considerable uh, disenchantment on the part of the majority of the Irish Catholic population. And that disenchantment was then, of course, was intensified by the famine of the late 1840s, um, and then uh, re-emerges in the land wars of the late 1870s and the 1880s. And what the British government, or what successive British governments, uh, can't ever quite decide is uh, how to treat Ireland. Should it be coercion, or should it be conciliation? and the British governments constantly swing back and forth. On the whole, uh, it's the Tory and Conservative governments that are in favor of coercion, um, and on the whole, it's the uh, Whig and Liberal governments that are in favor of conciliation. Um, And As of course those governments themselves come and go, the the policies are endlessly uh, swinging back and forth, um, and that's probably not a good way to make any substantial progress in a long-term manner. Mm Gladstone uh, in the mid 1880s uh, decides for a variety of complex and it being Gladstone probably rather convoluted reasons that the the way to keep the Irish loyal to Britain is not to keep coercing them because that has the opposite effect but in fact to give them some degree of freedom in the belief that they won't as it were run away with that but on the contrary that will make them grateful to Britain and therefore more fully conciliated and that was why uh, he took up home rule and had two attempts to pass it uh, in the mid-1880s and the early 1890s, neither of which worked. Um, So uh, the the whole story of the relations between Great Britain and Ireland as mediated through the politics, both the popular politics of Ireland and the parliamentary politics of Westminster, uh, is an absolutely extraordinary story and, and central to the whole history of 19th century Britain.
1: Would you agree with uh, Jonathan Clark's perhaps idiot- well, more than idiosyncratic view that uh, prior to the repeal of the Test Acts in 1828-1829 uh, that the UK was a full-fledged ancien regime?
0: Uh, that's, of course, um, a rather controversial interpretation of things which uh, has not been, I think it's fair to say, widely um, acclaimed accepted or acclaimed. I think that it it assumes that the the English or the British world of monarchy and aristocracy and church um, has a great deal in common with the old regimes of 18th century France, uh, or perhaps Austria, or perhaps Prussia, or perhaps uh, Russia. Uh, Well, I'm a historian or have been a historian of monarchy and aristocracy, so I'm unlikely to say that those are not uh, important elements in the history of uh, England and Britain and the United Kingdom as they are of other countries. But I think that the, the difficulty with that argument is that by the 18th century, the British version of that was so different that it's not altogether clear that seeing it as part of that European world of an old regime is altogether helpful. After all, the British monarchy in the 18th century had considerably less power uh, following the Glorious Revolution and the Hanoverian succession uh, than its continental counterparts did. Um, the British aristocracy was both uh, in some ways much more engaged in public business much more willing to pay taxes much more involved in economic change and economic development not just in agriculture but elsewhere than its continental counterparts and the Church of England um, was uh, liberal uh, and latitudinarian in its culture in a way that uh, wasn't really true of uh, the uh, majority churches in those other countries that I've mentioned Um, so that I think that to characterise 18th and early 19th century Britain as a kind of standard issue European old regime uh, isn't quite right Uh, it's also important to notice that uh, if one looks at the the Uh, economic structure certainly of England and possibly of Britain as a whole by the late uh, 18th and early 19th century. Agriculture occupies a less significant place than in most other European countries. Um, Something called industry or business or manufacturing was becoming rather more important and the service sector of the economy, uh, business, banking, finance, insurance, was already very important. So if you put all that together uh, I think what you have in 18th and early 19th century Britain is a nation which of course has some recognizable features uh, similar uh, perhaps to those on the continent, but the particular form that the monarchy, the aristocracy and the church takes in 18th and early 19th century Britain is I think so far different um, that to uh, apply this continental label to Britain is probably more misleading. Than and it is helpful
1: Why was there more Prime Ministers in the Lords in the nineteenth century as opposed to the eighteenth century?
0: I think that may be partly accident. Um, you know, it depends who's around at what time. Um, uh, Walpole, of course, was very unusual by the standards of the time in being Prime Minister in the Commons for so long. Um, and uh, Pitt the Younger um, was, of course, an utterly extraordinary appointment when he was very, very young. I mean, he wasn't just younger in the sense that he was the son of the elder Pitt. He was, of course, very young when he was appointed Prime Minister by George III, only in his early 20s. Um, and so there was, in a sense something slightly flukish about both Walpole and Pitt, um, and they are of course um, they help stack up the numbers for the 18th century in such a way that um, prime ministers were more in the Commons than in the Lords. I think by the same token, it, 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 the fact that it's the other way round in the 19th century is in part um, the fluke that Lord Liverpool is in power from 1812 to 1827 uh, which is a very long run, and nobody really expected that probably he didn't himself when he became Prime Minister uh, in 1812. Um, And then uh, from uh, the 1880s through until the early 1900s, the dominant figure in terms of the amount of time uh, spent in power was Lord Salisbury. Um, And Salisbury and Liverpool helped stack up the numbers rather the other way uh, when it comes to the 19th century. Um, It is is a rather intriguing uh, contrast um, and it certainly reminds one that uh, the House of Lords did matter uh, in 19th century Britain in a way that on the whole in the 20th century uh, it hasn't.
1: Was there in fact in 19th century UK an industrial revolution as as they used to be said to have been one um, or not?
0: Well, the concept has been around for a very long time, and uh, it doesn't seem likely to be vanishing any time soon. The historiography of the Industrial Revolution has been a particular interest of mine, um, dating back quite some time now, and the different ways in which the Industrial Revolution has been uh, presented Um, uh, is extremely interesting. I mean it begins if one thinks of people like Toynbee and the the Webbs and the Hammonds it's presented as a kind of social catastrophe. Uh, If one then thinks of the work of people like um, Walt Rostow in the uh, late 1940s and early 1950s and his predecessors it's seen as cyclical fluctuations and then it became um, something called economic growth uh, when it was thought to be a hugely transformative change and the kind of transformative change that other countries all would need to follow later on if they were to kind of get up to date. Um, And then there was a phase when it was thought of as a kind of much more limited period of growth and evolution rather than a revolution. Um, And nowadays, uh, I think people are trying to work out new interpretations of how to see it. So um, it's always been a rather, it's never been a kind of constant concept um, uh, since it happened, if I can put it that way. Now, so that does sound rather contradictory. I think different generations of historians have seen it in different ways, depending in part on what the contemporary economic problems that they were interested in um, suggested they should seek to find out about in the past. Um, But it seems to me there is no doubt that um, the British economy does undergo very substantial and significant change from, let us suppose, the 1780s to the 1820s or 1830s, um, both in terms of its industrial economy um, and in terms of its financial performance and uh, there's no doubt I think that in turn those things help explain why eventually the British are able to beat the French because there's a stronger economy and they are better able to mobilise via government the resources of the this stronger economy than the French were. And certainly if one pushes through into the 1830s and 1840s um, there isn't really any doubt that uh, the advent of the railway um, and the by then considerable increase in an urban population uh, involved in various forms of industrial production and manufacturing gives uh, contemporaries on an optimistic side the view that Britain is the most advanced economy in the world and that something uh, that they soon begin to call an industrial revolution has happened Um, or to pessimists the worry is that this seems a completely incomprehensible and uncontrollable and socially deeply wrenching set of developments which might might lead to terrible trouble going forward and that sense over the Industrial Revolution that um, contemporaries living through it uh, often disagreed as to whether this was progress or whether it was trouble um, is a theme I think that runs through the 19th century and in, in other areas of life as well
1: did uh, what was called at the time I believe the old corruption exist really exist circa 1815 and what was exactly meant by this phrase
0: Well, it was certainly true that radicals had this idea that there was something called old corruption by which they meant um, a set of sinecures and places and government offices uh, which paid quite a bit of money um, often to aristocratic figures. I mean, that was true, for instance, of the Wellesley family um, on the basis uh, of an appointment procedure, if we could put it that way, that would bear no relation to anything we would regard as acceptable and transparent today um, and which was not regarded by radicals like William Cobbett as acceptable or transparent then and a whole variety of publications um, by an uncle John Wade called the Black Book and the Extraordinary Black Book sought to uh, list and enumerate what these perquisites and sinecures were uh, to draw attention to them Um, and they certainly did exist um, in the early 19th uh, century and some of them lasted through until the 1810s and 20s and early 30s but thereafter as um, there is an attempt to to reform uh, the British state uh, in the light of new principles and ideas as to what the state should be doing, uh, which uh, begin perhaps with Catholic emancipation and then go through the Great Reform Act and the re- other reforms of the 1830s and indeed 40s, that in that world uh, where government is thought, uh, where it's suggested that government has to be seen to be at least responsible um, and to be concerned about the well-being of the nation as a whole, even if it couldn't do much. About about it, it has to be seen to be trying to do a bit. Then, this idea of a rather corrupt uh, state where lots of snouts are in the trough no longer seemed acceptable. So, by the 1830s and 1840s, um, most of old corruption had disappeared.
1: You write in the book that uh, the 1830s was, quote, the pivotal decade in 19th century British history, unquote. Why was that?
0: I think it was the pivotal decade um, because uh, the reforms that were passed then were an attempt however fully or unfully aware of it, the people passing the reforms themselves were, it was an attempt to try to reconstruct various aspects of the British state, um, to reform various institutions of British life, to try to take account of the changes that had occurred in the last 50 years. Um, And I think that that was um, as it were, uh, the period when, um, if one can put it this way, um, the old world of perhaps authoritarian Toryism, epitomized by Lord Liverpool and the Duke of Wellington, becomes replaced by what Asa Briggs called the Age of Improvement. And that sense that government has to be made fit for purpose, and the purpose now is thought to be social amelioration, a certain degree of improvement, uh, was, I think, very important. So I think that the 1830s were a hugely significant decade. Uh, I think the next most significant decade, if one can indulge in this uh, rather strange uh, activity of trying to rank the 19th century's decades in order of importance, I think uh, in many ways the next most important decade was the 1880s.
1: Uh, your view of uh, Sir Robert Peel seems kinder than that of uh, Walter Badgett. Um, thinking in particular of his essay, "The Powers of the First Rate Man and the Creed of the Second Rate Man," why, why do you have a better opinion of Sir Robert Peel?
0: Well, partly because Gladstone had a very high opinion of him. Gladstone was, of course, Peel's protege, um, uh, as indeed were many other people, but Gladstone was the most significant one. Gladstone thought Peel was the best prime minister as a man of business that he ever encountered. And, of course, Gladstone encountered a lot of prime ministers because he had a very long public career, and he was quite an able man of business himself. I think Peel is hugely interesting. This, uh, the, the sense, of course, of contemporaries, which Badgett picks up on, lots of contemporaries, that Peel was somehow a second-rate man with a second-rate mind. Um, and of course that he betrayed his own party by carrying Catholic emancipation and then by repealing the porn laws, that his smile was like the uh, plate on the lid of a coffin as somebody said um, and of course Disraeli was unbelievably vituperative about him in the House of Commons and very successfully so So nobody could deny that um, among contemporaries um, who uh, didn't like Peel, uh, he had a very bad press indeed and Badgett in a way I suppose was picking up uh, on that. But it seems to me that much of that was misguided in the first place. Peel actually did have a first-class mind, not a second-class mind. He was a very distinguished student, uh, undergraduate uh, at Oxford. Uh, He also had a much more varied and rounded life than those who said that he was just a second-rate workaholic bureaucrat suggest. He was a very discerning collector of art uh, and indeed patron of art. Uh, He was an agricultural improver. Um, He lived a very varied life uh, as befitted a man who, although of relatively humble origins, uh, was uh, fully plugged into the established world of uh, land ownership. Um, And so I think that's another area where the criticism is uh, beside the mark. Um, But above all, I think that Peel did have this very strong sense, certainly by the 1830s and 40s, that the purpose of government must at least in part be to bring about social amelioration, to make life better for ordinary people within the limits of what it was possible at that point for government to do. And I think Peel was, it really did possess, um, to that extent, a social conscience. I think that... uh, uh, the bit of peel that I do find slightly uh, irritating is that he was constantly proclaiming uh, the admirableness of his motives and the clarity and clearness of his conscience in the House of Commons, and I don't think that altogether played well. But I don't think there's any doubt that he was um, a very, very significant uh, Prime Minister, um, and we shouldn't uh, necessarily take the um, splenetic criticism. Of contemporaries necessarily at face value.
1: Wasn't the, one of the most remarkable aspects of uh, Sir Robert Peel's career is the, I suppose, the words disdain or contempt for his uh, party, parliamentary party,
0: mm-hmm.
1: being perhaps the first in a long line of Tory leaders. I'm thinking of Balfour, Austin Chamberlain, Macmillan, Heath. Uh, who felt this contempt and uh, in many cases preferred doing what either their conscious or political rationales dictated rather than what the parliamentary party or the party outside of parliament thought.
0: Well, it it is certainly true that many conservative leaders um, have not got on altogether well with um, their rank and file um, across the 19th and 20th century. And indeed, if if we were having this conversation with Theresa May, she might off the record admit to the same thing. Um, What I think is interesting is the different ways in which they deal with that. Balfour famously once said of the Conservative Party, I am their leader, therefore I must follow them. Um, And John Major, I suppose, who had a pretty torrid time of things after the fall of Margaret Thatcher when he was conservative prime minister, did the best he could to try to conciliate people who uh, the Eurosceptics uh, in the end were not really willing to be conciliated. but other Tory leaders have taken the view that their job is indeed to lead, um, and um, people had better get behind the leader and uh, follow uh, whether they entirely approve of what the leader is doing or not. That would obviously be true in the case of Margaret Thatcher. Um, there were certain Tory MPs who adored her. There were some Tory MPs who hated her, and it was equally true in her cabinet, especially at the beginning of her time, that uh, many of them very deeply disapproved of what she was doing. But she went on and did it anyway. Um, In the case of Peel, uh, he did make it far too plain that he had a disdainful view of uh, many of uh, the party. That's undeniably the case. Um, And it's also true that Peel did believe that he should do what was right, um, whether the Tory party was committed to that or not. Um, Hence, Catholic emancipation, which finally um, carried through the um, companion piece of legislation to go with the Irish Union, but as it were 29 years later, because he believed that otherwise Ireland would erupt into violence. Um, and hence his decision to repeal the Corn Laws uh, in 1846, which was also connected to the Irish Potato Famine. The Tory Party was the party of the Church of England and the party of the landed interest. Um, if you do Catholic emancipation and repeal the Corn Laws, you are not going to win friends and influence people among the rank and file of the Tory Party.
1: Why would you, or I'm sorry, how would you evaluate Salisbury as a historical figure in your story, as compared to say Disraeli or Gladstone?
0: Well, there are three very different people, of course. Um, Disraeli, a uh, self-made uh, adventurer, as many people thought of him, and indeed as he thought of himself, from uh, an Anglo-Jewish background, a novelist, uh, a man who many people thought had absolutely no principles whatsoever, a great maker of phrases, um, and uh, an figure, perhaps the most timeless of the major leaders of the 19th century, who you could almost imagine living certainly um, later rather than just then. Um, Gladstone, um, an unexampled uh, span of public life from the 1830s to the 1890s, uh, the greatest British Prime Minister of the 19th century, the only one to be Prime Minister four times, a man uh, possessed of extraordinary gift of head. Um, a um, uh, very, very clever, a genuine intellectual with a huge hinterland of interests. Um, and uh, then Saul's also in many ways a genuine intellectual, also with a huge hinterland of interests um, with a very different view of things from Gladstone, at least in some ways, um, a man who feels that everything is getting worse, uh, which is why he wrote that piece, Disintegration uh, in the early 1880s. Um, and a man who certainly thought coerced rather than conciliated, a man who didn't like democracy, even though he did quite well uh, as Tory leader as the franchise extended. Um, so he's a, uh, Salisbury was a hugely interesting uh, figure, uh, I have to say I think he was wrong over uh, wishing to coerce rather than conciliate Ireland. Um, on the other hand, what can also be said about him is that, like Gladstone, thought didn't really want in the last uh, two decades of the 19th century for the British Empire to get any bigger. He thought that Britain had already got more than enough that it could cope with and afford to run. Um, and that, of course, was also Gladstone's view. And it's one of the ironies of the late 19th century and one of the interesting things that has to be explained. How could it be in the 1880s? 90 when on the whole, it was either Gladstone or Salisbury who were in charge with a brief interlude from Rosebery. Um, how could it be that, uh, at least in the case of Gladstone and Salisbury, Prime Ministers who didn't want the British Empire extended, in fact it was extended a great deal. Um, and it does look bizarre because it's not what they wanted. Um, and in the, the febrile atmosphere of the time when all of the European great powers uh, and increasingly, Japan and the United States felt that it was their obligation or their privilege or their mission to carve large parts of the world. And once that became, as it were, the, the conventional view of the time, however distasteful or bizarre or irrational it seems to us now. Um, you couldn't be listening and watch other countries partitioning the world without claiming a fair share of it for yourself, even though you didn't want to do it. And that whole issue does seem to me to be one of the most extraordinary ones. And that's an issue where, in fact, Gladstone and Salisbury had much more in common than either would probably have liked to admit, but actually didn't succeed in what they wanted.
1: You seem to agree with Bernard Porter's view that the British Empire did not have a huge impact domestically on the UK. Why is that the case?
0: Well, I'm not sure that I think that. I mean, one of the things that I tried to do in the book was to point out that... um, coping with the empire, worrying about the empire, fretting about the fact that the empire was too big, dealing with the problems which the empire threw up, such as, for instance, the Great Rebellion in India, that this was actually, in terms of public business, was a very large preoccupation of a succession of colonial secretaries and foreign secretaries um, throughout the 19th century. And I think that I make that um, fairly clear in the book, at least I hope I have, um, But what I think is also interesting is that if one takes one of the figures of whom that was certainly true, Joseph Chamberlain, Colonial Secretary in the late 19th century and for much of the Boer War, um, Chamberlain had great schemes for the empire in terms of uh, uh, consolidation built around uh, some federal perhaps or built around a kind of economic free trade area. The problem was that although he believed this with a great deal of passion and he had support from a variety of um, uh, other people with a strong interest in empire, um, schemes of imperial consolidation did not play well in parts of the empire and they were not a subject of great interest to the majority of people in Britain either. And it's also lament throughout the 19th century on the part of many uh, politicians who were in charge of the empire that they can't actually get people... To be all that interested in it. Um, now, uh, they were just complaining in the hope of getting greater attention. But uh, it's hard not to feel that one must give some degree of credence to that. On the other hand, um, one of the ways in which the empire certainly was significant is that very large numbers of people from Britain choose to leave it, uh, choose to leave Britain to go and live in it, um, and of course. Extraordinary trends in 19th century Britain, which accelerates and intensifies across the century, was the growing number of people who emigrated from Britain uh, to settle um, in uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, to some degree South Africa, and of course the United States. More people left Britain uh, between, I think, 1906 and 14 as emigrants than were killed in the First World War. I mean, the figures were extraordinary. And to that extent, the empire was very important. But it may well be that the people for whom the empire was most important in Britain were the people who left Britain to go and live in it.
1: If you wanted uh, your reader to carry one thing away from this book, what would it be?
0: That global power, economic power, and apparently providentially blessed greatness um, do not last
1: well that's something that uh, uppermost minds i suppose these days for americans in particular with that being said i'd like to thank you very much sir david canadine we've been discussing the victorious century his latest book this is charles Cotillo for new network thank you sir david
0: and thank you so much it's a pleasure and privilege talking to you and i'm uh, much in your debt.
1: you're quite welcome